and bumped into the the manager um, who said to me, I've got all this stuff that's sitting in my garage. Um, do you want any of it? I said, yeah, I would, but I can't afford it. He said, no, no problem. We'll work out payment for it. So I paid £15 a month in those days uh, and bought the equipment off them and, and basically set, set up my own um, lighting business. I moved into production management and tour management while I was doing uh, rock and roll. From, um, I think, like within the construction industry, there's certain, uh, there's certain trades within the construction industry that become site managers or project directors in the future, and they tend to be kind of carpenters or people like that who would across everything from start to finish. Get involved in the venues and stuff. It's not as easy as you think. Uh, I, I remember doing a, a, an arena in Italy when I was working with Sucro, and the loading was every box had to go up on a telehandler over the bleachers and down into the arena. There was no loading. There was no loading. How mad is that? Welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast. Today we're talking with Lee Ford. Lee Ford is a former rock and roll lighting designer during the 80s and 90s who, 15 years on the road, went through the ranks from lighting and set design to production management and eventually tour management. When Lee came off the road, he moved into venues again, going through the ranks from production management to operations management and eventually general manager. Lee has worked in arenas and convention centres across the globe and now advised international governments on their plans for such venues. Lee is now based in the Middle East and is with us today to talk us through his career to date. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure, such a pleasure. So you started <laughs> in the 80s and 90s in rock and roll. Tell us, how did yeah, you end up yeah. in rock and roll? Uh, okay, well, um, I started uh, in electrical engineering and was working in the construction industry. And in the early 80s, that took a big hit. So as you do, you find um, uh, any way of earning a living. So I was actually working in a bar and a restaurant, and uh, the guy that cleaned the, the beer pumps was a drummer in a band, um, and they were uh, their manager was uh, Clive Epstein, who was Brian Epstein's brother. So obviously they they had some uh, clout behind them, and they also had some money behind them. And they'd, uh, they had their own truck, they had their own PA system, and they just invested in a lighting system. And literally the conversation went something like, you do electrical stuff. Could you help us put this system together? None of us have got any idea how it works. Um, so I, I, I went <laughs> down, set up the system, did a few shows with them. We were doing pubs and clubs around Liverpool at the time. And Liverpool had a, a really really good in hindsight when you're in the middle of it you don't realize because you've got nothing to compare it to but i had a, an amazing music scene because at that time we had uh orchestral maneuvers in the dark echo and the bunny man a flock of seagulls wire heat uh dead or alive uh all these bands all imagine china crisis uh, they used to play across the street upstairs in the bar across the road so all this kind of stuff was happening and this band that I work for, which still remain nameless at the moment, um, were kind of tipped to the top. They had the management, they had the money behind them. 
So um, it was a good band to be with. Um, and that's, that's how I got into the industry. Uh, the band folded, um, as bands do. I'm not going to go into that. And uh, I returned to being an electrician again and bumped into the, the manager um, who said to me, I've got all this stuff. It's sitting in my garage. Um, do you want any of it? I said, you know, yeah, I would, but I can't afford it. We said, no, no problem. We'll work out payment to it. So I paid £15 a month in those days uh, and bought the equipment off them and, and basically set, set up my own um, lighting business. And that, that's, in a nutshell, how it happened. Um, and I put myself out for hire. Uh, did shows uh, in local clubs like um, Phase 2, um, uh, the Mardi Gras, the Picket. There was a lot. There was a, there was a great venue scene at the time, and a lot, a lot of bands playing. And so, you know, we had uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. We had all these bands emerging at the time. And the first show I did was a band called Hazy Fantasy. I don't know if you remember that. Um, and right. I got in with the promoters, and I did all the local scene. Uh, there's a, an amusing story. I started getting a lot of uh, requests from bands at the time to to come down to rehearsals and, and work with them in the rehearsal studios, which I thought, this is fantastic. You know, I'm not just doing shows. I'm rehearsing with the band and learning the music. They're getting used to me. And then one of them confessed that because the rehearsal studios were so cold, they brought me down just to warm the room up. <laughs> because in those days, we didn't have LED lights. <laughs> so I was like, load of fucking heat. That's awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that actually did pay off. Oh, I did work with the bands. I mean, and it was great. You know, you'd have Echo and the Bunny Men in one room. You'd be in another room. Uh, flock of Seagulls in the next room. Frankie goes to Hollywood's down the corridor. All this stuff was going on, and they were all, you know, young, playing, small clubs, etc. at the time. So that's how it started. Um, uh, and then I began working with a band called Two People. Um, and we did, they'd signed to, uh, basically, they were, they were managed by Duran Duran's management at the time. So again, they, they thought that, mm-hmm. that that was a good uh, springboard for them. Um, and we did uh, we did a, a number of shows, a number of tours, and that's when I started touring. We did support tours. You get to meet production managers, you get to meet um, uh, tour managers, etc. And um, I did I did a tour with them, uh, and the guy who was the tour manager called me up and said, "There's another band going out, and they need somebody to do backline." And I'm real sad. I really do sound naive now, but it was literally what happened. I'm not going to dress it up. I said, what the backline? They said, well, all the instruments and stuff. I said, I've never done that before. He said, oh, you'll be fine. The way you work, it'll be fine. So I said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so um, <laughs> so I, I went out to work with, a, with a Mark Almond, um, who did Tainted Love. He was formerly in Soft Cell. He just split from Soft Cell. And he had this uh, this band called uh, the William Sinners. So um, 
I thought I better learn about backline. So I happened to be in the local supermarket at Tesco's and I bumped into a mate of mine, Neil Glover, who used to do guitars for Queen. And literally, we're walking down the aisles with our shopping trolleys and I'm asking him, how do you do backline? And he's saying, I can't tell you that walking out of the supermarket. So he gave me some tips and I went off with um, a pair of wire cutters, uh, a guitar tuner and a plectrum in the hope that I, I would survive whatever it was I was going into. I turned up in Germany. Um, <laughs> I'd never worked with a band. I didn't know what they had. I didn't know any of the songs, didn't know any of the people, didn't know anything. Uh, I turned off the first gig, opened the back of the truck, and in there was a cello, uh, a double bass, um, two Yang Chings. I don't know if you've ever come across them in your life. A bass guitar, uh, a drum kit, and a, and a keyboard, uh, a Yamaha piano. So the drum kit I could handle. The Yamaha piano was just to plug two cables in. The rest of it, I didn't have a clue. So I set it up <laughs> as best I could, um, thinking, you know, I'll probably be going home tomorrow. And uh, the band came in. And it turns out the band were all classically trained musicians and they set up and tuned all their own stuff. So I got away with it. I didn't, um, I didn't have to really tune anything. The piano was perfectly in tune all the time. The drum kit's a drum kit, the rest of it. So um, we did that tour, and uh, at the end of the tour, the band said to me, we'd really, really like to work with you again. Will you work with us again? I said, look, I've got a confession to make. I've never done this before. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a, I'm a lightweight guy. So they said, um, <laughs> they said, okay, we like you that much. Come and do likes for us. So I worked with them for six, seven years doing likes. Um, so that's kind of wow. like baptism of fire into the business. But every time you go on tour, you know, you come back. And I used to work in the local venue, um, the Royal Court Theatre, and I used to work in the Everyman Theatre as a casual. So you kind of... Um, you live this lifestyle, five-star hotels and planes everywhere, but then you come back and get your feet back on the ground and you're, you're unloading trucks and doing load-ins and load-outs. Um, and that was great, good education, because you watch other language designers coming in. You see what they're doing, and, yeah, you steal their ideas or you get ideas from their ideas. And that was great education. Um, it's difficult when you're a lighting designer or when you're touring with a band because you're touring in isolation. You only ever see your stuff. So you can't compare it to anything else. So you don't know if it's good, bad, or indifferent. Um, so that was a great way of, of learning new things, to be honest, and, and, um, and being able to assess how, how good or bad you are, really. Um, like, uh, I was the second person to take out moving mirror, waggly mirror lights. Um, the first person was a guy called uh, was that? Paul Hoover um, and a, with a band called It Bites. And then I rented them. There was only six of them in the country at the time. And I took them out with, um, wow. with a band called the Primitives. Um, and that was funny because I didn't know I was... I stick, I stick my name out a lot, I think. <laughs> Because I, I rented them from what the company. 
Ah, what desks did I use? I used we used an analog desk because they were analog lamps in those days. They were disco lights, and they only used uh, zero to ten volts. So you could fire them off a normal analog desk, and I used to use Celco desks. So um, I rented them. I got the guys from down to production and helped me program them because I haven't got a clue. Um, and he did. He helped me show me how to open them up and get them to move and stuff. And I booked him for the uh, the final show in London to come down and help me reprogram because I, I knew I was going to need it. And the London shows are always supposed to be the best shows, the most important shows, which I think is unfortunate for the people in Belfast and Glasgow because they get fresh shows out of production rehearsals that aren't really quite what they, what they could be yet. Um, so he came down to London after we'd been on tour for, I think, two months. He came down to London. I said, I need you to tidy this, this program up, which is a bit messy. <laughs> he turned around to me and said, how the hell did you get him to do that? He was, he wasn't as advanced as I was. I'd, I'd learned, uh, so much more than he was like, show me how you did that. Uh, so it was actually playing around with speed control, just to make you curious. So you would you would set positions and the speed between the positions. So instead of chopping, you don't allow them to get to the position, so they move around like that. So that was the old days. I mean, now it's all pre-programmed for you, and it's a, it's a lot easier. Um, but then, yeah. uh, I, I, you know, the thing when you work in a venue, you see shows come in, and there's another one tomorrow. And uh, there was a phase when people brought out LED buttons when every show looked the same. And I must admit, there's that kind of phase now. I think there's a lot of moving heads, but there's not a lot of production time. And people are just doing pre-programmed stuff. Um, so you go and see a show. Tonight you can go and see, I don't know, Metallica. Tomorrow you can go and see Sting. There's not a lot of difference between the two. I think it's down as it's always been the issue in the industry. There's never enough production time. But then with me, uh, I always used to, oh, I had the newest desk and then I'd spend the whole tour trying to learn how to use the desk instead of sticking to the one. Yeah? Um, but that's, that's yeah. youth <laughs> and foolishness. <laughs> so that's, that's uh, kind of my baptism, how I got into the industry. Oh, that's super interesting. And so then you moved into like, you know, production management and operations and, and general management. So when did you sort of, how was that sort of transition? I moved into production management and tour management while I was doing uh, rock and roll from, um, I think, uh, like within the construction industry, there's certain, uh, there's certain trades within the construction industry that become site managers and the project directors of the future, and they tend to be kind of carpenters or people like that who would across everything from start to finish. So um, when you're doing lighting and set design, you're involved in everything. Um, you know, the riggers come in first, the lamp is going second, uh, then you've got sound, and then you've got set and stage and backline. So... Lighting tends to be, or lighting designers tend to be across the whole thing. Um, and I would guess more likely to move into, I'm sure some, some sound engineers would argue with me, more likely to end up involved in production. 
So you're, you're involved. Uh, you, you have to understand rigging. You have to understand lighting system. You have to understand sets. No disrespect to sound, but you either hang it and turn it on. Um, it tends not to be uh, really part of the rest of it. Um, it is, mm. <laughs> don't get me wrong, but um, you, you've, got to, you've got a sense that you've got to work with performers and the whole look and feel of it, and then you try to fit the sound system in where you can. And invariably, you know, you are going to try and hide it behind scrims and stuff like that. Whatever you can. Mm. So mm. I think that uh, lighting design and set design leads naturally into production management, which uh, I get I got involved in. Also, running my own business, um, the 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 financial side of it was something that I was you know very very good at, and very attuned to because I had to otherwise we'd have, we'd have died as a business. So spreadsheets and and budgets and and, and making things work. And, making books balance, you know. Um, and again, that kind of leads into into tour management. Um, so, yeah, you know, and, and as you've seen from or, or heard from the conversation before, people ask me to do things and I just say, yeah, and then try and figure out how to do them afterwards. So I had uh, that kind of <laughs> natural attitude. Right yeah, <laughs> I figure it out when I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. it's you know it's a fun business and it allows us for that. It's I was just saying it's, it's really good because you know you can have the opportunity to like evolve and develop, but it, it doesn't come with nothing. Like you, you did a lot of years touring and you know the kit and you know the gear and you know timings of things. Like it does, it's not just that you can do it. You've you 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 build it over time. So yeah, and I made a lot of mistakes and I, I learned by mistakes. And now a note from our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Clearcom. Clearcom is the leader in voice communications for theatre and the performing arts. Call your cues with the simplicity and elegance of Clearcom Intercom Solutions. You can find them at C-L-E-A-R-C-O-M.com. Go check them out. (laughs) We wouldn't be where we are if we didn't make a lot of mistakes in the industry, that's for sure. Me too. too. Um, What took you to the Middle East? What took me to the Middle East? Uh, Right, well... I came off the road when my daughter was born because rock and roll touring is not really conducive to a, a stable marriage. Some people make it work, but I've seen a lot of them. Play, and I <laughs> can't imagine it would be. <laughs> yeah. So when my daughter was born, I came off the road. But I love the industry. You either love it or you hate it. You know, there's people who come and go with, oh, really? You get to, you know, work with the band every day. Yeah, well, it's not that easy. You know, and they'll be there for three weeks and then you'll never see them again. And there's people who know how to top it out. Um, so I, as I say, I love the industry. I wanted to still be involved with the, with the industry and with the people. Um, so I decided, here's a different way of doing it. If I go into venues and work in arenas, then all my touring friends will come around and see me. So that's that was basically the rationale behind it. And I felt that I had uh, basically from, you know, poacher to gamekeeper um i've got things to offer and i moved into venues i moved mm. into uh the nec in birmingham i started working for them uh i started doing corporate shows never done them before so that was uh that was again another eye-opener using theater boards as opposed to rock and roll boards 
um, spending days and stupid amounts of money for a, you know a two-hour corporate show. There's a lot more money in corporate than there is in rock and roll. Um, <laughs> so sure. I kind of I kind of <laughs> went to the University of, of Corporate Events. Uh, did three years at, uh, mm. at the the NEC of Berlin. I'd like to say, well, I went from being head of lighting there to um, production manager, and then I left there when I heard that uh, the Millennium celebrations were all, you know, starting to happen. So there was a lot of work around. And I'm originally from Liverpool, the UK, so I got wind that Liverpool had one uh, funding for a, a lighting project, architectural lighting project for the city. The city's got fabulous architecture. Mm. Um, and I'm not being arrogant, but I'm, you know, again, stuck my head in the news. I thought, if anybody's going to like my city, it's going to be me. So I left the NEC, went back and got involved in the uh, Millennium Celebrations, project managed the uh, the lighting wow. of the city. It was all architectural lighting, projection and stuff. And the the business was starting, you know, the entertainment business was starting to get involved in architectural lighting. You started getting you know, color changes on buildings and stuff like that, building outdoor units. Um, mm-hmm. So I started getting involved in that. We'd had a few demos down at the NEC. So I took that information um, and went back and started lighting buildings. I did a, a massive water screen show for the Millennium Celebrations. Um, never done one of them before. I'd be happy to do them again. It was a good learning curve as well. Um so they, they, they actually get these pumps that they use in the mines in South Africa to pump the water out in case there's a collapse or it gets flooded. So these are massive water right. pumps that they use for the, for the water screens. It's a, again, somebody creative has thought, if I take this pump and I fire it against a piece of sheet metal, it'll spray up in the air. You can project onto that. It was not my idea, but I used it. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. So that got me involved with the city. Um, and I think that was a great learning for the entertainment industry and local government and national government. Um, we'd always been unhappy bedfellows in the past, but there was some great mm. work done um, and great bonds and, and, and appreciation of each other, shall we say. Um, you know, now you see projection on Buckingham Palace every five minutes. There's firework displays all the time. So the industry kind of became happier with the government and the government became happier with the industry. It became a lot easier to do things due to um, the ease of doing things during the Millennium celebrations. So during those uh, during those times, that's when I kind of started understanding things like crowd management, health and safety, um, uh, ticketing, road closures, all this kind of boring stuff to most people. But I I, I found it fascinating. Um, and the city then mm-hmm. asked me uh, after doing the Millennium celebrations if I'd take over the events team. And work with the city in developing and changing and, and restructuring their investing, which I did do. And we won the European Capital of Culture. I was involved in the bidding for that. 
Um, and then due to the, the facilities that the city gave me, I went back and did an MBA at college. Again, uh, you know, I, I, I left school at 16 and I hadn't intended to go to university, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And the uh, Chester University, who I was doing the MBA with, asked me if I'd come in and start off an events management course, which intrigued me at the time because I left school at 16 with X amount of certificates, not a lot, and then went into working with my hands as an electrician. So to be asked to come back and set up a course at a university was, hey, wish my mum was alive to see this one. <laughs> so I did that. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> <laughs> I did that and uh, I, I thoroughly it. enjoyed it. I love, I love working with the, the vibe and the energy and the, the, the wants of, of the knowledge from you is great. That's how I got involved with um, Charge of Performing Arts Academy as well. Um, so I, I, I love working with kids, but financially it wasn't great. I then went to work for another corporate uh, entity called Grassroots. It was a global entity setting up a, a technical department for them uh, and doing their bigger, bigger global shows, which I did. Um, then the recession hit, 2008-9, uh, and I'd been asked by my old employer, the NEC Group, if I'd come over to Ireland and open up the convention centre in Dublin. I've never done that before. I have a crack on that as well. So off I went. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> off I went and, and uh, opened the convention centre Dublin. That was a great experience. Really good. My background and my family are Irish, so um, it, it was great crack, as they say over there. Um, and, and, a, and a brilliant market. Uh, when people open convention centers and never quite sure how they're going to take off, is the business there, etc. What tends to happen is consultants come in and sell them on the idea, and then the operators come in and have to try and prove it. And the consultants long gone mm. and told that government that they were going to earn billions from this place. <clears throat> and then the poor operators, right. <laughs> well, you know, uh, anyway. Uh, Ireland took off really quickly because of the uh, the North American market, because the big businesses, the blue chip companies in North America, were never because there was no convention center. They were never able to go and do conferences in there. Ireland. And there's a lot of mm. the Irish diaspora in in Northern America, Northern America. So they see that as the kind of homeland. So the, the business took off really, really well. And it's a great venue, fantastic venue, great people, great crack, and took off really well. But then um, the recession hit Ireland after it hit the UK. So in the November, um, there was talk about it, and it was a pretty ruthless uh, winter. So um, I was approached by Qatar National Convention Centre that's AEG albums actually, as to whether I'd go over to Qatar and, um, and open that one for them, which I wasn't sure. And then in the January, um, standing in three feet of snow when I took the phone call, and the recession um, busting that the 
Irish government had done was basically to put everyone's taxes up. So I got, I just got paid. Oh. <laughs> it's like, wow. So they hit everybody with uh, higher taxes. <laughs> where's my money? <laughs> yeah, where's, where's my money going? I'm standing in three feet of snow. <laughs> this lady is offering me three times as much money and a nice warm country and a house and a car and this house. Like, no brainer. I'm coming. I'm on so, a plane. Uh, Let's go. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was a tough one to sell to the world. <laughs> but, um, you know, my daughter's, my eldest was 16 and my youngest was 10. And, um, I, I convinced my wife that it would only be for eight months, uh, 18 months because it was a two-year contract and I was going to do six months on my own. So, uh, so I convinced it. her to come out. Yeah, I said, if you can't do 18 months, you know, what can you do? Anyway, she agreed. Uh, we went out there. We've, we've never gone back, really. Plus, there was a side uh, there was a side benefit, which I'm, you know, I've got a 16-year-old daughter in an inner city. I've got a 10-year-old daughter. And when you come out to the Middle East, as you know, you've got to cover up. You can't drink alcohol, no boyfriends, and the education system is really good. And also the ethos here in Asia, the ethos is to study hard and get a good job. So it was dad heaven. When you've got two young daughters, mm. yeah, you can't dress provocatively, no drinking, no boyfriends. And you go to school. You, you took them out of trouble, <laughs> man, and put them in the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we came out uh, with and uh, QNCC was, was, yeah. was a, it was, it was tough, but it was good. And it was a great, uh, we, I like the cultural differences. You know, I, I learned from all my years of touring that I used to come back to the wife and say, look, you know, Liverpool's not it. There's more out there. You've got to come and see it. And my youngest daughter has got that wanderlust. She's trying to tick off every country in the world at the moment. She's, she's a model, so she's been all over the place. A few places I haven't, so we're kind of in competition. And that, that to me, travel and moving countries is, is a great education as well. So that's how I got into venues. Um, I've got this... I guess, natural aptitude to sort things out. QNCC was, you know, mm-hmm. there, was, there was some challenges in the beginning. We made it work, but we, we got it on its feet. But unless, uh, mm-hmm. there's not a massive amount of business there. I did COP18 there. We were just on COP28 here in Dubai. Um, mm-hmm. And then I went oh, off to China. Right? How did that go? Oh, that went really well, really well. Uh, I think... The whole cop thing now is, um, it's like a well-oiled machine ring. It, it soldiers on. I mean, it comes, mm. uh, I don't know if you want to, have you done any UN events? No. No, I haven't, but have I've, I know a no. bunch of people that have done that. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you know, there's almost this massive, yeah, like a massive ride that comes with it. So you just follow that, really. Um, follow it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, and that, then you, you that, came that near good. me. You came to China a bit. I did. Yes, again, uh, AEG Ogden's, which is now S. Uh, sorry, it was SMG, which is now joined with AEG. What are they called? I don't know, the three-letter acronym. 
Um, SMG came over to Qatar National Convention Center and they did some research into how to improve the venue, etc. And I was involved with them and they asked me um, if I'd come out to China with them and, and work on uh, Shenzhen World, which is the largest convention center in the world. Um, two kilometers long, it's got two, two subways. Do you, do you know it? Have you been? No? Yes? I know. I have not been, but I know of it, yeah, because it's just yeah, over the border, yeah. right? So, yeah. Yeah. So it was a case of, um, oh, are you in Hong Kong? <laughs> right. So it was a case of um, what I come over and, and, and help with that, which was, again, another cultural experience. I worked on that for two years, um, and I'm happy to see it open. Uh, we put a really good system in there. We made that really work well. The, uh, the way of doing things in China is not necessarily to use basis so look they've got patch systems they've got networks that you would die for over here um but they still bring in the trust put it on the floor take the cables on the floor and don't use the nl system so um mm. unfortunately it does work it will work but they don't seem to use it that's just the nature of the beast i guess i don't know what yeah. it's like in hong yeah. kong hopefully a little bit better well, in Hong Kong, you there's it's always a fight for space, right? So whenever yeah. we think about loading in an event, you have a wonderful yeah. big room, but it's really where does where does the stuff come in, and what's the size yeah. of the door? <laughs> that's yeah, always well, the first question yeah, because we have to only only build something that can get through a bloody door, and it's this it's kind of the bane of my existence, like because yeah. you like if you just given it a nice clear path we could do so much more but it's yeah. never like that in hong kong <laughs> no the no, elevator no. and the door it's, it's, what you got to figure out it's something that they don't think of i mean when when they built uh, the arena in liverpool it's my hometown i was insistent uh, to, to get involved but they wouldn't let me get involved because i wanted it to be right you know almost as though my reputation here in the states is people are going to talk about my my hometown arena, and it better be good. Or they wouldn't let me get involved. And they built the door too small, too small to take a truck in. Yeah. So the first event, they had to dig a hole in the floor to get the truck in. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, I know, it, I, I, I feel you because I think that, like, as, as somebody also runs venues and operations, you understand that fast in, fast out saves money, right? And so if you're creating an, 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 uh, a pathway that 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 makes it complex or difficult to get in and out, then you're not doing the operations any favor whatsoever. You know, so it's it's always, especially people who are work in the technical field or the production side of it, who go into a lot of venues, feel it. You know, and um, yeah, I've been in some difficult venues, and then you get to one where you can drive the truck up and go, you know, roll straight off the the, the loading yeah. docks, the same height as the Onto truck. The stage, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's a great day. <laughs> and that's that's all you know. That's kind of why I wanted to get involved. We all complain about venues, and I thought, you know, it's easy to complain. Get involved in the venues and stuff. It's not as easy as you think. Uh, I, I remember doing a, a, no. an arena in Italy when I was working with Zucchero, and the loading was every box had to go up on a tally handler over the bleachers and down into the arena. There was no loading. 
There was no loading. How mad is that? Um, anyway, that's mad. The, you, you, Shenzhen World was built and designed really, really well. Um, but unfortunately, from what I understand, the way it's being used is that they're not using it. And whether that's mm. uh, due to not knowing, I don't know. But we, we tried really hard with that. Yeah. Right? It was tough. Again, that was um, an interesting cultural experience. I've, um, you know, look, in mm. this industry, we have heated moments and we have heated arguments or discussions. Um, but, you know, next day we'll be in the pub having a pint together. Um, uh, so I was, I was, um, I found it unusual when you have an argument in China with, um, with Chinese people at a meeting. Uh, you then have to go to a karaoke bar with them, get absolutely drunk, and then they sit on the floor singing love songs to you to make up. It's okay. That's the way you do it. <laughs> the way I do it. <laughs> that was a little bit of a cultural, cultural shock. I want to see you in a karaoke bar. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that was going on. I had a really big bust up over infrared <laughs> and digital um, systems. And then they invited me out. I, I initially said no, and then somebody kind of tugged on me and said, "You can't, you know, that's 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 very rude to say no." I don't know what a KTV is. No, oh, no, you have to go. So I went with all these guys, and then they're sitting kneeling down singing love songs when they've been drinking half a bottle of whiskey. It's like, okay, I see. This is you making up. <laughs> that's this is you making friends. <laughs> yeah. Awkward. <laughs> yeah. That's it. You know, when they bring out yeah. the Chinese wine, you're in trouble. That's for sure. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Oh, I'm a small woman. I'm a small woman yeah. too, so I really can't. I can't really take that much. <laughs> but no. anyway, but that's what's a, a beautiful. I think you know when you get to work cross culturally and and connect with people through our industry. Absolutely. I think it's a wonderful thing. You know. Yeah, I mean. Mm. In the very early days of working with uh, with Mark Almond, um, I, I, I had a, a lady working with me who used to be a show caller in the theatre or stage manager in the theatre, um, Jane, lovely person. And I went off for four days to Vienna to do um, a show with Mark Almond. Again, it was a very early day, so I didn't really know what to do. But it was a one-day show, and we were there for four days. So I just stayed with the band, and they liked to hang out and smoke and drink and whatever in the hotel. It was a holiday inn, so okay. So I stayed with them in the holiday inn. I went out to the local kind of um, sausage stand outside or whatever, and that's all I ever saw of Vienna. Came back, and Jane, who worked with me, said, so what did you think of Vienna? I said, I don't know. I only ever saw the hotel. What hotel only? Holiday Inn, she went, oh, my God, you went to one of the most beautiful cities in the world. You stayed in a Holiday Inn, never left it. And she dressed me down. And I never forgot that because we are we are very fortunate to get the opportunity to go to these places. And we should experience them. So I kind of became, mm. uh, I used to avoid what I call school dinners. When you're on tour and there's like 30 guys and they all go out together. Firstly, you can never get into any places, and if you can, they're usually substandard. So they'd go right, I'd go left and find mm. my own kind of flavor of whatever city I'm in. 
and that became my kind of mantra. Mm. I don't do school dinners. I'll go off and find my own version of Macau or Hong Kong and see what it means. And sometimes I win, sometimes I lose. Yeah. But I have an experience, you know. Yeah. I don't get the eating chicken food. No. I'm not. I'm not a big fan of that. Which they. <laughs> yeah. That was the first meal, the first business lunch I was taken out on in China. Was and it, I. They said, what, what do you want? I said, oh, no, you order for me, chicken feet. Uh-uh. I'm not going to ask you if you eat them things, That's but I don't it. think you <laughs> And you have to eat heartily. No, no, but I have <laughs> Yeah, you have to, like, it's, it's always about being polite, right? And I, I think my worst one, Chongqing, China, is a place that is known for its spicy food. And... um I was out with um, colleagues there and they took me. I said, oh, yeah, I'm happy for spicy food but not too spicy. So they took me to this place. They're like, fine, fine, we'll take you to a not spicy place. And they had these big beers and then they brought out all this meat, no vegetables, no nothing. And I tell you, I don't know what kind of not spicy they thought it was, but I was <laughs> dying. And I was like, I, I was drinking, having one piece of meat to literally the whole bottle of beer because it <laughs> So I'm like, thank God you didn't take me to the spicy place. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't yeah. have lasted. So yeah, no. There was one place they took me to when I was gone. You got. There was one place they took me to when, when when I was leaving, um, and it was a very even it was like a Michelin star Chinese restaurant. Um, again, I I couldn't read the menu, so they ordered for me. And the first dish was six ducks' heads, I mean heads, on a plate, arranged in a nice fan. <laughs> I said, what am I supposed to do with this? Six ducks' heads. Oh, my I goodness. I tongues. I said, well, just Did give me the, the tongues then. No, I didn't. I just said, I can't. I'm sorry. And there was nothing in there. There was nothing in there that wasn't weird. <laughs> So I, uh, yeah. I had to oh my give my apologies and leave. You know, I usually don't <laughs> work at those things. Yeah, but in some some parts of the world they do they do things that are not in your wheelhouse. That's for sure. So, yeah. Um, I was going to ask you. So we always we always finish with our um, two questions. So I'm going to ask you those questions now. What's your most favorite thing about your job or the industry? My most favorite thing is the people. Um, the people that you meet that are a little bit crazy, a little bit off the wall, um, uh, passionate about what they do, creative, innovative, and, you know, even people who may fall out, dislike each other. When it comes to the work as a team, you know, I don't know. I've seen people on the stage sort some problems out who were trying to knock seven bells out of each other the day before. So um, it gives me the opportunity for travel, but it's the people. I think the people make it real. I agree 100%. And if you could change one thing about your job or the industry, what would that be? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, uh, If I could change anything. I think it's moving um, technically too fast. I think people just get used to something, and then the next week there's something else. So there's constant change 
Uh, so companies and and uh, people who work in the business constantly trying to catch up, and they're never kind of settled enough to to utilize what they have. So you're using edition one, and edition five just come out. So you've got to have that in order to be a leading edge company. Uh, and you feel, as I did sometimes, you know, you've got to be the coolest light designer with the most up-to-date desk, but you spend most of your time trying to learn how to use a plumbing thing. Um, whereas you could do so much more and be so much more creative if it would just kind of settle a little bit. Um, so I just think it's moving so fast now. Technology is moving so fast. It's difficult to say where it's going. AI, robots. I mean, one thing that's that's happened that I really love is, is, um, is drone shows, but that's a new facet to the industry that's using that. But mm. um, I, I feel that the the younger people now are struggling to keep up with the technology. I mean, they consider me, they call me old lamping, but um, then they're, they're not being creative anymore. They're, they're, they're not. They're just trying to play catch up. We used to spend hours in the warehouse with mirrors and water and slash curtains trying to make wacky effects and um, psychedelic effects. These guys are just trying to get on board with what's, what's there and knowing that there's something else tomorrow. So I don't think they mm. have the time to be creative and learn to use the tools properly. That's why I think there's a lot of uh, lighting design now, which is whack in a cover and throw a few pre-programmed looks on and, and call that a song or call that a look, call that a, a show, you know, and that's a shame because I, I do think the talent is there, but I'm not giving the time to, to, to play with it enough. It's moving really fast. But then you, you're not going to slow it down, are you, I guess? Yeah, but it's a really good, it's really good sort of insight in the sense, you know, and I've never actually thought about it from that perspective. Um, that, you know, you talked, we started an early on, you said, you, you know, we don't get enough time in the venue or enough time to produce stuff. So there's this cycle where we're trying to put in shows really quick, but then also the technology is changing really quick and it's just ad hoc, right? Like you, everything's just getting thrown there at the stage and it's such, that's what having worked with um, Franco Dragone, who used to create, we used to create a lot in the space a very expensive yeah. exercise to do as as circus yeah. shows, but it allowed yeah. people to have the time and the space to to play with the machine and and figure out how it works and and all of that. But that but that's so rare, so rare. Um, it's really we should we should all slow down a little bit. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, you know, I mean, and let's hope that at some stage it'll go retro and park hands will come back and dinners will come back. But I doubt it. The, the the thing is that it's more in the hands of the content creators now. Um, a lot of the shows that happen, because a lot of shows are video or projection now, which is fine, and the companies that, that uh, have the video or have the projection are basically just installers now, get it in, make it work, give me enough service to do X, Y, Z. And the people who've got the time to play are the content creators. Um, so it's shifted mm. uh, that way, um, and uh, well, that's the way it's going. That's the way it's going. I, I, you can't stop it, but you've got. Uh, and please don't put this out. You've got computer geeks running 
shows now. People who will sit mm. on computers and put, you know, content in it. Does it fit the music? Does it work with the set? Maybe. Um, so I think that's a shame. It's out of our hands now. Yeah, that's it. That's so true. Lee, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I've learned so much today, and uh, thank you for your time on the Theatre Art Life podcast. It was truly a pleasure to hear about your work and career. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. You take care. Theatre Art Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only $38 per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.